brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Sunday is a holy day, but it's also a holiday. Never forget that every single Sunday is a holiday. As soon as you forget that, church becomes a chore, and we wouldn't want that to happen. Uh, so when I say happy Sunday, I always welcome you to say happy Sunday back. And a very happy Mother's Day to all of you as well. I want to, before I begin my sermon, celebrate today the mother of Mother's Day, one of the greatest mothers of our nation, Julia Ward Howe, who was a great abolitionist, suffragette, peace advocate. You may know her probably as the author of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Julia Ward Howe was a nurse and she cared for Union soldiers returning from battles in the South. They would come back wounded and weary. Many of us forget that the Union very nearly lost the war until, um, oh, uh, General uh, oh, Sherman uh, decided to start burning down cities. Uh, but at that time, Julia Ward Howe was serving in Union camps, and she was sad because the Southern soldiers of the Confederacy had a hymn that they would sing as they fought. Dixie was their song, of course. Southerns hear your country call you, northern flags and south winds flutter, send them back your fierce defiance. And Julia Ward Howe was worried because the northern army, the Union army, didn't have such a hymn, and so she set about to compose one. And uh, it was published in the Atlantic Monthly, and became uh, the hymn of the Union Army, the battle hymn of the Republic, one of the songs that help us win the war. I am a book collector, and uh, many antiquarian book collectors have a white whale, a book that's out there in the world that they search for and search for, and after 10 years, I found my white whale. Those of you who are council members will have already seen this. This is the Atlantic Monthly, Volume 9, published out of Boston in 1862. This contains a first edition of the Battle Hymn of the Republic by Julia Ward Howe. And here it is. They felt so strongly that they placed it on the cover of the magazine. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. And on it goes. And so it was important to her that she make mention of Christ's birth because motherhood was important to Julia Ward Howe. And so she writes in the last verse, in the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free while God is marching on. Following the Civil War, she became a fierce pacifist and an advocate for peace amongst the nations. And she was terrified that following the war, we would send our sons to fight in the Franco-Prussian War, which broke out in 1870. And her fear was so great that she called a Congress of Women and in 1870 issued the Mother's Day Proclamation in Boston, which was the first 
Mother's Day celebrated in America, founded on the idea that men ought not die in war. And I'm going to read for you today it's the proclamation in its entirety because it is more important today perhaps than ever before. You'll hear these words of the great Julia Ward Howe, Boston, 1870. She says, Arise then, women of this day. Arise all women who have hearts, whether our baptism be that of water or of tears. Say firmly, we will not have great questions decided by irrelevant agencies. Our husbands shall not come to us reeking with carnage for caresses and applause. Our sons shall not be taken from us to unlearn all that we have been able to teach them of charity, mercy, and patience. We, women of one country, will be too tender of those of another country to allow our sons to be trained to injure theirs. From the bosom of the devastated earth, a voice goes up with our own. It says, disarm, disarm. The sword of murder is not the balance of justice. Blood does not wipe out dishonor, nor violence vindicate possession. As men have often forsaken the plow and the anvil at the summons of war, let women now leave all that may be left of home for a great and earnest day of counsel. Let them meet first as women to bewail and commemorate the dead. Let them then solemnly take counsel with each other as to the means whereby the great human family can live in peace each bearing after his own kind the sacred impress, not of Caesar, but of God. In the name of womanhood and of humanity, I earnestly ask that a general congress of women without limit of nationality may be appointed and held at some place deemed most convenient and at the earliest period consistent with its objects to promote the alliance of the different nationalities, the amicable settlement of international questions, the great and general interests of peace. These words spoken, the inauguration of Mother's Day, Boston, 1870. Kindred, let us pray. Almighty God, maker of the heavens and the earth, eternal mother, abide with us for a moment. Send us a word. Amen. Well, we have hundreds, perhaps thousands of names for God. We share this habit of making many names for God with our Muslim brothers and sisters who also have thousands of names for God. But us and our Christians, we take from the Bible hundreds of different names for God. El Shaddai, Adonai, Kyrios, Peter, Spirit of Truth, Abba, Elohim. In our sacrament of baptism that we got to see just a few weeks ago, we use what's known as the Riverside Formula, written by Reverend uh, uh, Bill Coffin, uh, to use at Riverside United Church of Christ. And uh, it, we say, uh, quote, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God, mother of us all, end quote. Bill wrote that to get around a Roman Catholic loophole. Many of his 
parishioners would want to marry into a Catholic family, but being Protestants, they then would have to go through catechism and get baptized again. And so he reached out to the bishop in New York and said, what do I got to say so that my young fellas who want to marry these Catholic girls uh, don't have to get rebaptized? They said the agreement was all that matters is that they be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But Bill Coffin, being a good progressive Christian, was uncomfortable baptizing simply them in the name of the Father. So he put the first three words in there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then he tacked on his own little piece, one God, mother of us all. The thing is, after you say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Catholics close the book on the baptism, and you can say whatever you want after that. And so that's why we say it in such a way. Our baptisms then counted for the Roman Catholics. In the year 2016, this issue was put to bed. And the National Council of Churches and the Pope decided together that they would receive each other's baptisms in any formula as deemed appropriate by the clergy and the church. Anyway, that's church nerd stuff, but I love it. But our embrace of the Trinity as Christians automatically gives us the first three names, of course, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that first name, Father, is more than a little complicated. Today we heard Jesus refer to God as Father, but God's name is alluded to in the maternal form many other places in the Bible, or as a plural, or an unutterable koan, like the Hebrew Aye, Asher, Aye, I am that I am. In the first chapter of the Bible, God refers to God's self as we. Let us make mankind in our image. Not in my image, in our image. Because when it was written down, there was a, it was a mom and a dad. Because it made sense to the ancient people that it would take a man and a woman to make another person. We redacted that later. Now, Jesus uses the word Father, but this is complicated. We want to empathize with Jesus. If we try to place ourselves in the personal context of the man, Jesus, and assume that he knew or intimated that the identity of his own father was questionable, among, especially among the members of his community, we get a little bit closer to what he actually meant when he calls God Father. Think of Jesus' relationship with his father. Who is Jesus' father? Is it Joseph? Is it Yahweh? Is it the Holy Spirit? This is a very deeply personal topic for him. He was rejected, remember, amongst his own people because of this. But when he was a boy, I wonder, did he suffer being labeled as a bastard, born out of wedlock? Conceived out of wedlock, at least, as the Bible tells us. What did the other children say about his mother or the identity of his father? So if we simply steal the word father from the lips of Jesus and then toss it around like it's some commonly understood thing, we'd do a disservice to the actual lived experience of our Savior. And so this, more than anything else, is why I get anxious when some of my more evangelical peers liberally pepper their verbal prayers with the phrase, Father God, Father God, Father God, over and over and over again. Because every single time that Jesus addressed God as Father, Abba, something absolutely 
critically important was about to happen in his life. And he experienced some deep, unwritten pain. So for my part, I'm very careful with that word, Father, when referring to God. Though I do use it always, at least once during worship, I use it one single time in the precious moment each week, the moment when I pray the exact same prayer that Jesus prayed, the Lord's Prayer. Now at other times, I try to reach out to God by many other names. It strengthens my faith, almighty Savior, ancient of days, the light, architect of creation, the name of God that was given to me by my father, who was a Freemason, author of life, Hashem, which is Hebrew simply for the name, guide, mother, life giver. The idea of God as a parent seems to somehow be this intractable thing that we have as Christians. But the idea of God as parent, whether it be God our mother or God our father, is going to be problematic. It's going to be challenging for individuals, for folks who grew up beneath the shadow of a person, a parent whose own personal brokenness prevented them from living up to some arbitrary standard of parenthood. In my life, I've worked many, many hours counseling people, adults, who still suffer the ongoing trauma of having grown up under a narcissistic parent or a parent who believes their children owe them payment on some arbitrary debt or parents who are distant and painfully detached. And likewise, I have spent hundreds of hours holding hands with numerous parents who gave all that they had only to watch their child vanish from their lives for reasons that they don't understand. And so in our human experience, if we're thoughtful people, we'll quickly discover that there are numerous reasons to take issue with simply identifying our creator as mother or father, even though these are sometimes the words on Jesus' lips. I prefer, in my own faith journey, to use words for God like guide and destination. Reflecting on today's teaching from the 10th chapter of John, and after spending some time recently thinking deeply and reflecting on the life of a beloved friend who passed into glory, another word comes to my heart for God, another name, simply the word wind, wind. Now, this isn't groundbreaking stuff. It's actually in the Bible. The holy wind gets blown around a lot, especially when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, right? The wind, the word is pneuma in Greek or ruach in Hebrew, uh, breath of God in English. It's a kind of strange wind. Think of the word in Greek, pneuma, right? Pneumatology is what we call the study of the Holy Spirit. But when we say pneumonia, we're talking about something wrong with our lungs, right? Uh, so pneuma means also the wind that fills the lungs. Because the ancient Hebrews believed that you didn't breathe on your own. It was the Holy Spirit that filled your lungs and then came out as an exhale. And that exhale might be the name of God. Ruach or Abba or Elohim. Now, wind inspires prophetic speech and invigorates life. And not for nothing, but ancient people didn't have a real good grasp on human biology. Uh, so they figured when you quit breathing, uh, that was when the life went out of you, the wind went out of you. Today, now, we can, people stop breathing, we kind of bring them back. 
uh, but that wasn't so in the ancient days. Okay, perhaps God is the kind of wind I think that a sailor might have to contend with out at sea. Jesus says elsewhere in the Bible of our relationship with him, I go and prepare a place for you and I will come again and I'm going to take you to myself so that where I am there you may also be and I am the way and the one who believes in me will do the works I do. And today he promises us, he promises us today that no one will snatch you from my hand, his careful loving hand. But there's all sort of a beckoning and a push and a pull in our lives like a strong wind that takes a ship toward its destination. And of course, the ship always goes in the same direction as the wind, right? Well, no, of course not. There's more to it than that. A boat sails filled and creates differences in pressure. The depth and nature of the keel affects the direction. At certain times, sailors will even tack against the wind in order to reach the destination that the, the wind doesn't really seem to want to send them in order to go where they want. But no matter how we contend with the wind, with God in our lives, we have the promise from Jesus that though the wind blows, we will not be snatched from his hand. I, in my life, I tacked back and forth against the wind, against God, spending so much energy trying to go, trying to go to the places that I thought I wanted to go to. Then how often I let the wind just blow straight into the spinnakers. My life where the halyards were tangled and the sails were footloose. I was shuddering in a breeze. But life is a journey of self-discipline and spiritual discernment. And I suspect God can do very little with loose sails and a shallow keel. Blow us back ashore, maybe. Bringing us home again like a mother, safe in a loving, comforting hand. Self-discipline is the constant practice to do the things that challenge us and to make amends so that we can shore up our sails and capture God's wind to go where we ought to be. This is why we offer confession and forgiveness. We patch the seams and the cracks and the holes of our life by doing this. And discernment is a keen awareness of where the wind is actually calling us to go. And I suspect that like good parenting, like the wind, it's a combination of encouragement combined with the flexibility to permit mistakes to happen. God wouldn't have given us confession if God always expected us to get it right. Say, but in the most dire circumstances, the wind doesn't force us in a direction, but rather encourages us like a mother. And it takes many years of discipline practice to learn how to navigate by the wind. Jesus wants us to follow him I am the way, he says. I am the guide. I will take you to my father, who is your mother, who is your creator, who is the ground of your being. I will take you there because I've been there. I'll take you to your destination if you'd but let go and haul on for a minute and listen to what I want to teach you. And that wind, the wind of God, will blow in your life, but nothing will snatch you from my hand. Nothing. We don't always want to follow God. This is perfectly human. I think God completely understands. And, you know, not for nothing, but if you read the Bible, uh, you discover pretty quickly that the folks who follow God in an absolute and uncompromising way tend to reach their final destination a great deal sooner than the rest of us. Uh, if you catch my drift. 
Remember, folks, though, the word martyr, the word martyr is just Greek for witness. That's all martyr means, witness, which means only to tell the truth. That isn't to say that if you tell the truth, they won't kill you for it. Happens a lot in the Bible. Okay, on our leeward journey, we often adjust our course. And we find blessing along the way, and occasionally we might even divert from our course to rescue other ships that we see floundering in the wind. And sometimes, sometimes our ship does smash upon the rocks. And we find ourselves on a beach awaiting a lifeline or perhaps building a new ship from whatever we find at hand. And always the wind continues to blow, sometimes gentle and sometimes fierce, but Jesus promises that nothing can snatch us out of God's loving hand. But it's there to follow, and always to the one good place to end the journey of life's little day. And like a mother, we've never snatched away from his hand. God, our mother, still holds us. And so lift your eyes to the horizon and decide how much of God's own wind you're going to gather into your sails. And when you're ready, go ahead and give it four bells. God is not only the guide that carries us, but also our blessed destination. So do not be afraid of the wind, but be grateful for it, because we navigate with discipline, discernment, and confidence. Thank God, our loving mother. Thank Jesus, beloved brother. And thank the Spirit, the wind that fills our sails. And let all of God's children say, Amen.